0: Hi, and welcome to another great message from Noosa Church. We pray that you're impacted and inspired by this teaching. For more information and service times, check out our website at noosa.church. Enjoy. I'd love to get into the Word this morning. So if you've got a Bible or anything like that with you, or you want to take some notes, go ahead and grab that out now. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Through to 22. And um, when Jesus is questioned about um, the temple tax, is it right to pay these taxes? So from chapter 22, verse 15 through to uh, 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. Really interesting situation that happens here, that we see these people come to Jesus with the intent of trapping him in his words. And his response to them literally leaves them speechless. And to me, reading through this passage, there's one massive question that goes unasked, right? They say whose inscription is on the co- uh, wh- whose inscription is on the coin, and Jesus says, "Well, you know, you give it to Caesar because it's his it's his picture on there, it's his writing, and it belongs to him. Give to Caesar what belongs to him, and give to God what belongs to God." And the question that goes unasked is, "Well, what is God's, right?" And they wouldn't. The Pharisees, thinking about what Jesus had said to him, they would have been putting two, to two, two and two together in their minds and thought like, "Oh, well, that's the, my next question is going to be, well, what is God's Jesus?" And as they thought through that, oh, okay, how do we figure that out? Okay, what bore the inscription belonged to that person. Okay, so what what bears the inscription of God? What bears His image? Oh, wait, oh, that's me, right?" <laughs> and so they would have just gone, "Oh, well." I don't want to enter into that one with Jesus. Let's get out of here, right? And it's, uh, it's funny how they'd set out to trap him and Jesus had turned it on their head by making it personal, right? And we see in Scripture this idea of the image of God and his ins- inscription on us from start to finish, right? So in-, in Genesis, first chapter of the Bible, first chapter of the first book, uh, verse 26 to 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the very beginning, the likeness of God has been upon us, his people. And from the very, when you see in the very end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, we are inscribed with his name. It says from verse 3 and 4, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. You know, what we are bears the image and the inscription of God. So the initial question they set out with, you know, is it right to pay taxes or not to Caesar was made personal. And he told them, well, you should probably be a little more concerned about giving God what belongs to God. Um, and so should we. So often we're consumed with the trivial that the really important things in life go wanting. And we, we lose track of what is really valuable. And uh, I want to ask that question today. Are we giving God his due what is truly valuable in our lives and who we are and what we do are we giving are we giving that back i heard a uh, an evangelist uh, talking to someone and talking about value he said um you know what, what do you own that's valuable what's the most valuable thing that you own?" And he thought for a moment he's like well oh, i my dog is pretty dear to me that's really valuable and like my car, you know, those are probably some things that I have that are of significant value. And he's like, oh, hang on a second. How about, how about your eyes? How valuable are your eyes? Would you sell them for a million dollars? And he's like, no, no way. Ten million. Mm, still probably not. It's like, So your eyes are one of the most valuable things you own, right? He's like, yeah. Like, well, how about your life? How much would you sell that for? Couldn't put a price on it, Right of that kind of value. And this is what we owe to God, our very lives. I want to share a passage from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is Paul pleading with the church, saying, I beseech you, right? I'm pleading with you. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And there's these three conditions that Paul talks about that we should be aspiring to present our lives back to God in the gift that he has given us. And those three things, living, a living sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice and a holy sacrifice of ourselves. And so this morning I want to look into those kind of things in how we how we give ourselves back to God because it's such a lofty concept, right? I need to give my life to God. Sometimes it goes wanting for the details. So let's look at some of that this morning. So check number one off the list, right? You know, a living sacrifice. All of us are alive, right? Easy. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. You know, when you think about what a sacrifice was, you probably think of, you know, the big stone altar and the animal that gets killed there. In the Old Testament, you know, prescribed worship and ritual and that kind of thing. But to in sacrifice, thinking of it as the concept of being willing to give something up and not to expect it back or anything back. You know, and these animals that made up the most of the sacrifices, they're killed. So obviously you can't get your animal back. But this is not the attitude we're to take in our lives lived for the glory of God. Rather than the sacrifice being given over and killed and finished and done, dusted, forget about it. We're to continually offer ourselves to God in a life lived rather than a death and an end. The sacrifice is living and ongoing or repeated. I was teaching at a a seminar for missions for young people in the midst of lockdown and social distancing and everything like that this year. Um, And one of the young people, as they were talking about their life's mission and goal, he was talking about he wants to go somewhere really dangerous where he's probably going to get killed for his faith. And uh, he wanted to live in this situation where, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And um, it's pretty extreme attitude, right? Um, but the kind of thinking that led him to that place and um, is present in a lot of times, um, it sounds pretty extreme, but I think that same mindset seems attractive to us in other situations and contexts in our lives as well because it's much easier to think, of our lives as Christians as one big commitment, one time, then lots of little commitments or lots of large commitments over however many years there is. It's so much easier to think, if I just do it once, that'll be enough and and then I'm done and I won't have to, it's not going to be hard and and that'll be it. But the aim is not to, to surrender our lives but to continue to leave it there, not to take it back as we're often able to do. The Christian life isn't finished and complete when we give it over to God and we trust Him and we surrender, but rather that is the beginning. We are to, like Paul says in the same book, we are to die daily, to unceasingly offer ourselves to God. There's a missionary, um, Jim Elliott, uh, who was eventually killed for his faith in the Amazon. He said, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. Nor is surrender to the will of God per se adequate to fullness of power in Christ. Maturity is the accomplishment of years. And I can only surrender to the will of God as I know what that will is. You know, we, I th- Last week we talked about maturity and I was so tempted just to talk about maturity because I love uh, talking about the fullness that God has for us in being shaped closer and closer into the image of Jesus, his son. Um, but isn't maturity, you know, as it's seen in Ephesians 4 that we looked at last week, isn't it the sum of progress and time? Right? You know, no fruit that grows on a tree when it buds is instantly a fruit. No baby is born as an adult, right? Maturity happens and it takes it takes time to get there. In the same ways, when we, when we give our lives over to God, its it can't be instant and over. Giving ourselves over is the beginning of sacrifice. And so the question for us to consider, are we a living sacrifice in our day, in every day of worship to God? There's a warning that Jesus has for the church that uh, for a specific church, but worthy for us to consider too. He says in Revelation 3, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain and are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. You know, check and see if there is life. I think we, we constantly need to, to analyze where we're at with God and ask Him and seek and seek that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us where we are lacking in His life that is so abundant and so freely given. So how do you check if something is alive? I don't know if uh, when I was at school, we had like a science experiment and you check all these different things and see if they fit the definition of alive. And I think the same things apply to us in our lives with God as well. So one of these things is, is movement, right? Everything that lives has to move around and function. From flowers, you know, that have to open up or follow the light around to herds of wildebeest, right? They have to go where the food is or go where the water is. It has to be moving. Everything's going somewhere to survive, right? Stagnancy, standing still is what breeds death a lot of the time. Movement is life. So we ask ourselves the question, are we going somewhere? Do we have direction and God-given purpose in our lives? Are we moving? Are we uh, respiring, right? One of the other things, is it breathing? That's how you can tell it's alive. The word used to describe the Holy Spirit is breath or wind. In the same way something breathes and respires, it lives. And we live by the Spirit. He guides us and He teaches us and he, He gives us truth and empowers us, right? Can we see that in our lives? Are we respiring? Are we sensitive? Right? Things that are alive are sensitive to everything that's going around. They have senses. They're able to experience and react. Right? Like the I think of those, I don't know what they're called. I probably should have Googled it. But you know those freaky like rock pool mops, right? You poke them and they, all the tentacles suck in. You know what I'm talking about? Someone probably knows the name. Hopefully. They've got no eyes. Like they don't look like they should be alive, right? They've got no eyes, arms, legs. They don't have a mouth. You can't see them eating or anything like that. But when you go to poke them, you know that they're living because they can react to you, right? Jesus says, you know, my sheep, they hear my voice. Can we hear God? Are we sensitive to him? Can we detect his presence? Can we tell the difference between right and wrong? Is in, in our lives, are we, oh, thank you, are, we empowered to, are we empowered to act and react to all the craziness that goes on? Or is there silence or numbness or a sense of drifting? is there growth. The maturing process that we talked about before, you know, if you see an old gum tree, maybe there's a, there's been a bushfire come through. It's all black on the outside. None of the branches have any leaves or anything. But if you see a green shoot coming out of that tree, you know, it's still alive because it's growing, right? We've got the same thing in our own lives, no matter the circumstance. Are we still growing? Are you experiencing more of the victory that is freely given to us in God than you were six months ago? Or, you know, do you look more like Jesus than you did a year ago? Are we being conformed, formed into, constantly into his image? Or nutrition, living things have got to eat, right? If we're going to do all this stuff like move and grow and react and be sensitive, we need energy and fuel to make it happen. Otherwise, it won't happen for long or we get sick and ill or malnourished, right? Do we feed on the Word? Are we sustained? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. Are we allowing ourselves to feed and get that energy that we need for the other stuff to happen? Do we study it? Do we think about it? Do we talk about it? All of those things will help us get the nutrition that we need to live, to truly live. Another thing you can tell something is living is, here, this is the nicest way I could think of, excreting, right? Is it excreting? Getting rid of waste. It's another way you can tell whether or not something is alive. Living things have to get rid of the bad stuff somehow. As we engage in, you know, all the other stuff that I was talking about, we can't help but ingest or create nasty things that'll stick around and poison us from the inside out. Right? We, ha- we need to be moving these things that, if they stick around, will, will taint or poison us. We need to get rid of those and to take them from the outside, take them from the inside out and remove them. Are we continuing to allow Jesus to remove that poison that's within? Are we. Are we allowing him to do that? And are we being a part of that? Or are they making us sick? As our bodies naturally create waste and just doing their thing. As disciples, we're going to experience disappointment. We're going to be affected by this world if we're in it. We're going to experience insults and bitterness and rejection. But will we allow those to fester within us or will we remove them? And finally, reproduction know something's alive if it's making more of itself right your car for example it looks like it you know it breathes it feeds it excretes it's got exhaust right um but no matter how many cars you have in your garage they're not going to be multiplying right they're not alive jesus told his disciples matthew 28 the great commission go and make disciples of all nations baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. You I made you guys disciples, you look like me and now go and do the same thing. Teach everyone else and make more of yourself. So in our own lives, are we teaching others? Are we sharing what we have been freely given? Or has the gospel found a dead end in our lives? So that's, that's enough about living. The, the sacrifice that we give back to God needs to be living. It needs to be alive. And if there's something in this that doesn't add up, then we need to do something about it. What we give to God, that is us, firstly, needs to be alive. Secondly, it needs to be acceptable. That's the other one. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And Leviticus chapter 22, Leviticus cups a lot of hate, but it's got some good stuff in there. Leviticus chapter 22 tells us about sacrifices and offerings, about what is acceptable and what's not. So here's some uh, of the lowdown on what kind of animals were able to be brought. Whoever brings a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you should not offer to the Lord. Nor make an offering of fire by them on the altar of the Lord. Either a bull or lamb that has any limb too short or too long, you may offer as a freewill offering, but as a vow it will not be accepted. Here we have, don't give what is defective or your leftovers to me. It was a warning against that temptation that we have to to give over what is left to God, the the, the maimed sheep that won't be much good for you. Probably don't want to breed with the others, and you know if it's sick and dying, it's probably not going to last It's not going to last a long time anyway, so it may as well get rid of it. And that temptation is there not only for them but for us, and it's there for a good reason because we see later on in Scripture that that's exactly what happens. You open up and read. I'm not going to read it all now book of Malachi talks about this attitude of just bring the sacrifice and get it over with. And this is what God has to say about it. He says, who is there? This is from Malachi chapter 1. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. From the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, in every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, "Oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick as an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord. Now, to summarize, this kind of attitude of, well, if this is, this is what you're going to do in worship and you're just going to bring me what you don't want, then just close the doors. Yeah. And that's, that's intense, right? But the reason, he, I am a great king and my name shall be great. You know, earlier he makes the point and says, like, if you brought a sick animal to your governor, right? You just brought it to their door and said, like, hey, I brought the meal for tonight. Wouldn't they be insulted? And here I am, I'm, I'm your God, like, and this is what you, this is how you would honor me. Even uh, you know David makes the point of saying, he says, "I can't give to God something that's cost me nothing." He's offered a free sacrifice, and he turns it down and says, "No, I'm, I'm paying for this. I, that generosity is great, but I need to give to God something that costs me something in us laying down our lives as sacrifices and giving back what is God's to God? Are we giving him the best of our lives? Are we giving him what we can't find a use for or don't really want? Does God get the first fruits of our lives? Or does he get the dregs? For the sacrifice to be acceptable, it must be the best. Not because God has an ego issue or anything like that. You know, um, does God love a whopping great check to the church? No. He says, I love the cheerful giver, right? Because <laughs> what was important? What is God interested in? It's not money. He's interested in us. That's why the heart is what is, what is the, the part that God is excited about, right? You know, we, uh, a while back, we heard about the story of Cain and Abel. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and better? Because it was brought with faith, that is why it was acceptable. By faith, in Hebrews 11, we see that Abel offered a uh, better sacrifice. And that without faith, it is impossible to please him because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Getting some amens from the daughter there. Thank you. Um. In our lives, though, we need to ask the question constantly, is God getting our best, what he deserves, what is due him? And what needs to change so that he does get that and he doesn't get just what's left because we are so easily consumed in ourselves. And finally, the condition of this living, acceptable sacrifice is that it be holy, That same passage in Leviticus tells us you shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land, nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer these as bread for your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted in your behalf. If it is corrupt or deformed, then he doesn't want it. Imagine what has been described so far, you know, sick or torn or like, you know, oozing scabs kind of animals. It's filled with disease and it's not what it ought to be. And this was not what was intended for this sacrifice. Instead, it ought to be perfect. And the same goes for us. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And, you know, make every effort to live in peace with men and to be holy, knowing that without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. God's desire is that we be holy in all we do. And this is important to, to understand in our culture, that there's, there is a certain way that we ought to live to honor God. When God chose a people to follow him, in, in the people of Israel, his children, he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, laws to, be, to follow in order to be free of sin and to to honour God, Ten Commandments, first five being about God, this is how we interact, you know, worship me only, honour my name, those kind of things, here's how we interact, first five, and then the second five, here's how you interact, because God cares about how we treat each other, and Jesus' summary of those is, love the Lord your God, and love people, the only catch is, of course, for us is that we we can't keep them all, right? It, us and everyone who's come before us have had the same struggle that despite these things being good and great, we just don't do them. No matter how hard we try, we don't do them. And instead, we we have entered into that that corruption. We're not perfect as we've been intended and made to be. We've all lied or stolen or cheated or... And in doing so, we've dishonored God. We're not holy. And really, the only hope of the guilty, those who have done wrong, is that the judge might let them off, right? And God is good, just, and merciful, right? He will not allow the the guilty to go unpunished, and what kind of good judge would, right? But, He is so merciful to bring that justice and punishment on another in our place, despite our corruption and our faults that has been taken away from us in the person of Jesus Christ. He bore our punishment. Jesus, His Son, came to earth and lived as we did, free of sin though, and gave Himself up willingly, sacrificed, took that punishment that should have been ours, and He did all of that so we would be free. From the corruption and considered holy and righteous in spite of our actions. And we need only to turn from our ways and trust in Him and the amazing gift that He has brought. And if we, like it says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if the issue of sin or this issue of holiness in presenting ourselves and our living sacrifice to God, if sin or holiness was unimportant, Jesus would not have been the solution, right? If God cared very little about uh, the state of His church, of His people, why would it have demanded the humiliation, torture, and corruption of Jesus in order to be resolved? Instead, we see the cleansing of sin was costly. The sacrifice was large, but the victory, great, right? Holiness is of utmost importance to God, and in love, He has given us the opportunity to experience it and freely receive it. That same faith that we use to take hold of that grace that has been given to us in a gift helps us to listen to Him and to love Him and His commands in return. Jesus says in in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commands. He's shown us abundant love in sending his own son to die. And the last question in uh, holy sacrifice is this. Do we love him? And we need to show it. As those who bear his image and inscription, we need to allow him to bring us to life. Not just give him our leftovers, but... Love him and keep his commands, not as our chore, our duty, but out of that relationship that he has enabled. For this is love of God, as it says in 1 John, that we keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Let's, let us all strive to ask those questions, to allow him to bring us to life, to, to present ourselves as acceptable and whole in giving our whole lives because He is worth it. And in doing so, love Him, be holy and keep His commands. We hope you've enjoyed this teaching, that you've been encouraged and challenged. To stay up to date with our latest messages, you can subscribe to our podcast. For more information, resource or service times, please check out our website at noosa.church.